We turn this morning to the book of Esther. The book of Esther. We'll be reading the fourth chapter of the book of Esther, although our message basically encompasses the entire book. As we deal with one of these M individuals, a man by the name of Mordecai. I have three points at the beginning of the sermon outline, and I'm going to mention them before I read. One is this. Esther is an interesting book to read. It's one of those books of, of the Bible that when you begin it, you want to finish it. You want to know how it comes out. It, it reads in an intrigue. It reads as a mystery. How will this happen? Especially for the first time reader, it is so intriguing. But even for those who have read it multiple times, it's, it's just amazing what God continues to bring out of his word. It is an interesting book. Having said that, I will also say, after preparing this message, I'm going to tell you, it's a difficult book to preach. It is not easy to preach from the book of Esther. Because, thirdly, it's a puzzling book to understand. What is really going on here? In a book in which the name of God in any shape, form, is not mentioned. And sort of a mysterious providence is alluded to. One wonders, what's the point? And as we come to the last point of our message this morning, hopefully we'll be able to clarify that a little bit. So it's an interesting book, difficult to preach, puzzling to understand why God has given this to us. Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And went out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatash, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatash went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Atash went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatash and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the 
intercourse without being called. There is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your, father, your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father, we pray that your spirit will enlighten us from the reading and preaching of your word to bring us closer to you and your will for our lives. In our Savior's name we pray, amen. And amen. Trust most of us are fairly familiar with the story of Esther, and yet I don't want to go over some of the information and detail that is included in this book, given the fact that one cannot simply assume everybody knows the account. So I want to look at four things about Mordecai. What, what do we learn about this man? And what is it that God would have us learn from his life? Well, the first thing I think we can note about Mordecai is that Mordecai was a man of compassion. He has a compassionate heart. If we turn back to chapter 2 and we look at verses 5 through 7, we learn something about this compassionate side of Mordecai. Chapter 2, 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconi, the king of Judah whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. See, there is a compassionate side to this man. Now, if, if you look at the family, she's pretty distant. I, I hope you trust and saw that she's the daughter of his uncle, making her not a niece, but a cousin. And yet he, for whatever reason, is the one who reaches out to her. He has compassion upon this orphan, this girl with neither father nor mother. It is he who reaches out to her. 
He's a man of compassion. But you see that as well in the chapter that we read. For by the time we get to chapter 4, there is a new law in effect. And as we read through chapter 4, we learn that the law is to exterminate Jews for a price. Everybody who kills a Jew gets paid. That's going to become the law. It's not the law right now, but it's going to be the law in the near future. Mordecai is concerned. He's concerned not so much for himself. He's not really even concerned for Esther at this point. He is concerned for his people. He is concerned that mass slaughter is going to take place of the Jewish people. And he has compassion. He doesn't just back up and say, well, if it happens, it happens. No, he's concerned over the death of more parents. He's concerned there might be more orphans. He's concerned that there might be children slaughtered in all of this. Mordecai is a man of compassion. That's one thing that the text will indicate to us. The second thing that I'd like to bring your attention to is that Mordecai is a man of principle. He is a man of principle, which means he's, he's a man who has some, sort, some moral integrity. He has standards. He knows the difference between right and wrong. He knows the right that should be followed. He knows the right that should be done. And he seeks to do the right. That's what it means to be a man of principle. I think on this Memorial Day weekend. And that's part of the reason I chose Mordecai for, for this particular Sunday. Is, is to think about how those soldiers. That not only have served but have died, those two were individuals of compassion, were they not? They're there because they're moved by a heart of compassion. Something is going on in the world that they desire to correct. They desire to change. Something unjust is happening. Sometimes the slaughter of whole people have moved them to action. My guess is that most of you who stood earlier probably stood because of somebody you knew who died in the second, or the Korean, or the Vietnam conflict, or perhaps in one of the wars of the Gulf, where we had regimes seeking to annihilate groups of people, we move with compassion to right the wrong. Many of those whose graves are adorned with a flag upon this day, we are reminded we're people of principle and high moral standards. They joined the military, they served, because they had principles. They wanted to do the right thing. 
them doing the right thing was serving their nation for a period of time. For them doing the right thing was putting themselves in harm's way. Many of those who died in these military actions died as a result of saving other men's lives. Mordecai is one of those type of men. A man of principle. Let me know three things how that is seen. One, if we back up okay, a chapter, okay, uh, two chapters, excuse me, we find that there was a plot. The end of chapter 2, starting at verse 19. Mordecai, as we learned in this passage, sits at the king's gate. Commentators debate whether that means, does he have some government position or doesn't he? Okay, we're kind of unsure at this point. Some commentators believe he's sitting at the king's gate only because he wants some sort of uh, news back and forth with Esther. That's what's prompting him to be there. Whatever it is, we don't know, but he's there. In God's providence, Mordecai sits at the king's gate on regular ongoing occurrences. On one of the times sitting there, he overhears two of the king's eunuchs plotting the king's life. King Ahasuerus has angered them in some way. We don't know how. All of, a lot of this is left out. We don't know what he did, but they're angry. They're upset, and they're plotting the king's life. Mordecai overhears this. Now, what does a person of principle do? What does a person of moral integrity do? Well, you could argue, huh, this guy's my captor. This guy's keeping me in captivity. I'd just as soon he dies. I'd like to see the man assassinated. Maybe we'll get a better king. Maybe we'll get somebody who'll let us go home. Maybe we'll get somebody who'll be more favorable to Jews. See, he could have reasoned that all out, but instead he acts with moral integrity. There is a plot to assassinate a leader. He tells somebody, these two guys, they're up to no good. They're going to assassinate King Ahasuerus. That report gets to Esther. Esther gets it to the king. The king looks into it, and sure enough, the plot ends up being true. The two men, whose names I believe are even given in this passage, Big Fan and Teresh, are executed. Note is made. Mordecai is the man who did this. It's written down in the minutes that are kept of the kingdom. He's a man of integrity. The plot to overthrow the king. Secondly, there is as well the refusal to bow to one of the king's officials. A man by the name of Haman. Turn to chapter 3. After all these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set 
his throne over all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. The king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to him. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, so they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. One offended man. But this, you see, this act of Mordecai is part of the fact that he is a man of principle. Now, is he some sort of rebellion, rebel against authority? No, because we just said he reported a plot against the king. But he's a man of moral integrity. Well, if it's a law, you have to bow to Haman. Why don't you bow to Haman then? Because there's a higher law. Why is Mordecai not bowing? Because Haman, we are told, is an Agite. Okay. So, Agites are descendants of the Amalekites. And you go, oh, we've read about Amalekites before in the Bible. Yes, we have. Exodus chapter 17. 14 through 16, we read there of the fact that it's the Amalekites who when Israel was traveling from Egypt to Canaan by way of Mount Sinai, attacked the Israelites and kill off many of the children, many of the women and many of the old and many of the feeble who were walking behind. So they didn't attack the military strength. They attacked the rear, where the weak were. And God's decree regarding the Amalekites were, they shall die for what they've done to my people. Now, there's another little point of intrigue. Who is Mordecai? Mordecai is from what tribe? Benjamin. Saul, first king of Israel, is from what tribe? Benjamin. Remember the rule, the law that God came to Saul with? Saul, you are to go out and destroy all of the Amalekites. The time is now. I've waited all these years from Exodus chapter 17. Now I'm ordering you, Saul, execute every single one of the Amalekites. What did Saul do? He didn't do it. In fact, the one person who is mentioned who he spared, anybody remember his name? King Agag, who is 
Haman, he's an Agite. Here is the man that cost the tribe of Benjamin the throne. Because, you see, when Saul disobeyed the order of the Lord to destroy them, the Amalekite, God takes the kingdom away and gives it to David. Benjamin is now on the outs. Judah is now in. And here's Mordecai sitting in Susa with a man who is an Amalekite, a descendant of this king, riding and I'm supposed to bow, there is no way I bow to a murdering tribe. I will not acknowledge that. I will not submit. He's a man, you see, of principle. Thirdly, we see that he is a man of principle in the fact that when we turn to chapter 4, the passage we read, what is Mordecai doing? Mordecai in chapter 4 is fasting. Why? Because of what we just read in chapter 3. His refusal to bow has led to a rampage by Haman that it's like I want to get my hands on every single Jew I can. Well, why is Haman so angry? Why doesn't he just go after Mordecai? Mordecai is the only one who isn't bowing. Yet the text tells you in chapter 3, he doesn't want just Mordecai. He wants all the people of Mordecai. He wants every single living Jew there is. Do you think perhaps Haman, once he discovers that Mordecai is a Jew reflects back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 and says, you are from those people who tried to annihilate my tribe. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go against the order of God himself. I am going to go against the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And instead of my people being destroyed... I'm going to destroy every last Jew on the face of the earth. Mordecai is fasting. We are told in this particular passage, chapter 4, verse 3, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. What are they doing? They want the law changed. They want God to come to their aid. This line is one of the few glimpses we get that maybe there is something more going on here. Keep your finger, Esther chapter 4. Find the book of Joel. Find the book of Joel. Joel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. 
Joel's a small one. And the book of Joel, chapter 2. We're faced with a, a situation in Joel in which God is calling for the day of the Lord. Enemies are going to rise up and there is going to be great destruction. Yet, there is this note of grace. Chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. The same triad of words that are used in Esther chapter 4, verse 3. And if I recall, I could stand to be corrected, but if I recall, these are the only two places where those three words come in that order. You say, well, what does that mean? What it means is this, what's going on in Esther chapter 4 verse 3 is most likely a reflection back on the call of Joel. Understanding that the Lord is the one who is calling. The Lord is the one who is saying to his people, return to me. See, in the day of their calamity, Joel says, the Lord says, return to me with fasting, with lamenting, with mourning. Continue reading verse 13. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Who knows? Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows? Mourn, weep. This is a man of principle. A man who understands that in a day of calamity, it's a day of fasting. It's a day to reflect. It's a day to think about one's own life. And one's own sin. And to plead. To plead. For mercy. He is a man of principle. Thirdly. He is a man of action. He is no fatalist. He's no. Well. Hey sirrah sirrah. Whatever will be will be. The future is not ours to see. Hey sirrah sirrah. He's not a do-nothing guy. Well, bad things, nothing I can do, just let bad things happen. Can't control that. There's bad karma out there. Oh, it's all fate. That's it. It's just fate, controlled by the stars. And here we sit as just these little puppets on these strings. Mordecai is no fatalist. Mordecai is a man of action. We've already seen it on numerous occasions. We've seen it in the declaration of the fast, of, of the fast that he will not give in on. But we also see it, don't we, in his challenge of Esther. 
See, now as we go through chapter 4, Haman has gotten his law passed to exterminate Jews for a price. That's going to be happening in the future. Mordecai is fasting along with Jews throughout the entire empire. Mordecai is sitting at the king's gate in fasting, acknowledging to everybody who comes around, basically, I'm a Jew and I'm going to die because of this rule of Haman. Esther hears from others what is happening. Why is, my, why is Mordecai down there in sackcloth? Go find out. Did you notice that throughout the whole chapter, Mordecai and Esther never have a direct conversation? It's always through other people. So there's people going back and forth. There's servants going back and forth. Here, here's some clothes. Change your clothes. No, I won't change my clothes. Why? Well, there's a law out there. What law? She doesn't even know there's this law. Because you see, she has been told to hide her identity as a Jew. So Mordecai suggests, well, just go to the king. <laughs> right. Do you realize what the situation I'm in? I'm on the outs with the king. It's been 30 days since he summoned me. He's got to be angry with me for some reason. Maybe your beauty has started to wear off, and maybe he's got some new attraction. And so he's not as interested in Esther as he once was. We don't know. But for 30 days, Ahasuerus has not cared at all to see Esther. Esther's in a predicament. If I appear before the king and he really is angry with me, he's going to die. I'm going to die. Mordecai's point is, you're going to die anyway. If the king doesn't point, put out his golden scepter, you're going to die for barging in, as it were, on his entrance. But if not, you're going to die because you're a Jew. Because, you see, this has now gone public. It's now circulating amongst the servants. Do you don't think somebody doesn't want a reward? That's what Mordecai is saying. You're going to die. You need to do something, Esther. If you don't do something, it's not just you who are going to die. All of us are going to die. No, Esther, there is this possibility. The Lord may send another deliverer. But oh, the shame that's going to come upon you and your family. Because you didn't take the action. Because you're in the position. Who knows? If God has not put you in this, at this time and place. Do you, do you remember that word? Who knows? Who knows? Joel chapter 2, right? Verse 13. Who knows if God? See, there is a connection going on here. Who knows? He's a man who challenges Esther for such a time as this. He's also a man of action in his call to the Jews. Now, let me, let's just shortchange it. Esther goes to the king, kind of cops out a little bit and says, why don't you come for a banquet? So she has a banquet. She has a banquet with 
the king and with Haman and uh, can't quite bring herself to admit what's going on. So she says, come back again. Haman thinks this is wonderful. This is great. I get to go to two banquets with the king and queen. I'm on top of the world. In between, of course, something else happens. The king has a very sleepless night. As for the session records to be read, finds out, hey, whatever happened with this Mordecai guy? Whatever happened with him? They check, nothing. Nothing's ever happened for him. No, he never got a reward for saving my life? No. King doesn't quite know what to do. At that very moment, in God's providence, Haman shows up. King says, what should be done for a man who, who has the king's highest appreciation? Haman thinks it's him, so he says, I think a good idea would be that somebody lead him through the streets on a horse and everybody has to bow down and acknowledge him. King says, good idea. Go find a horse, put Mordecai on it, and you lead the horse through the streets. Oh, the humiliation. The anger. The one guy in the kingdom who will not bow down is now the guy that he has to lead through. Well, when it finally comes out that Esther indeed is a Jew, that Haman has plotted her death as well as others, the king is angry that he's been deceived by Haman, orders the death of Haman on gallows that he had specifically built for Mordecai. Oh, the providences of God are so interesting at times. King says, but I can't change the law. The law of the Medes of the Persians, once there's a law, I can't change the law. The suggestion comes, well, what about if we make another law? That on the day you appoint for people to kill Jews, Jews are allowed to defend themselves. Good idea. That becomes the law. Mordecai, by the time you get to chapter 8, is rallying the Jews throughout the entire empire. He has risen to a high stature in the empire. Everybody is, is fearful of Mordecai because of the power and clout that Mordecai now has in Ahasuerus' government. And so when Morde the word goes out, hey, you can defend yourselves, the amount of violence, although it still happens, is small in comparison to that which could have happened. He is a man of action. He doesn't just sit back and let things happen. That brings me to the fourth point, and that's this. I mean, at this point, we'd go, this is great. This is wonderful. This is a good man. He's doing good things. Well, maybe I need to rephrase that. This is a man who is doing right things. But the question is, is he doing them for the right reason? And that's the pause of today as well. 
specifically tomorrow. We honor men and women who we believe did the right thing. But did they do it for the right reason? And that's kind of the question, isn't it? Because many of those who, who died in those battles were not Christians. What are they doing? They're doing probably the right thing. What was the reason? See, and that's, that's what comes out of the book of Esther. Because you see, Mordecai, for all these good things we can say, the one thing we have to point out is this, is that he is a man of omission. Where's God? Where is God in his speech? Where is God in his talk? Why is it fasting and not fasting and prayer? Why is there sort of this, this providence that exists out there this who knows, this for such a time as this, that is absent of any noted message of God. Let me pose three things to you. One, here's a possibility. It's there, but the compiler, the writer, the one that God spoke through, the one that God inspired, the one that God had record these words, doesn't include them. Now, I would hope you would find that somewhat troubling. I do. It would seem strange that God would inspire somebody that the Holy Spirit would illuminate somebody and not report that which Mordecai actually did say. That would seem strange. That, that would seem like a glaring omission. So although perhaps we could put that out there, well, it's there, they just didn't write it down. I don't think that's a good answer. I don't think that's a biblical answer. Well, maybe then we could proceed to the second thing. It is there in the action, but not the words. We see it throughout the book. Everything that is going on directs us towards the Lord, directs us towards the sovereignty of God. But we just don't hear it. Okay? Interesting. We, I don't know if Dr. Norm planned it or not, but tonight he goes to Daniel. Okay? What a contrast. That guy can't keep his mouth closed about God. Mordecai can't seem to open his mouth about God. And it causes an uneasiness, doesn't it? There is an unsettling about this book because God's name isn't there. What's going on? So is it there? We see it in their actions, but we don't see it in their speech. And, and what does that do? It creates that uneasiness. Hmm. What does that mean in your and my lives? When we say, well, they'll see it by my actions. They don't have to hear it from me. 
Well, my kids will learn about God. They'll see me involved in it. I don't have to speak about Jesus being my Savior. What does that that tell you then? Well, my neighbor or my coworker, he sees me, you know, in, in these actions, but I never discuss God with them. No. So we see the in the actions of Mordecai everything that directs towards God, but there is never a word of God from Mordecai. And that causes some uneasiness. Why is he doing this? Oh, maybe that's what your children wonder. Why does my dad do this? Why does my mom do this? I don't know. They never tell me. I just see what they do. Why does that guy always do that? He's always there over his lunch, and he's bowing his head. What's he doing? Is he Muslim? Because you see, that could be the possibility today, couldn't it? Is he Jewish? Is he just taking his moment of silence? A closed mouth doesn't really inform, does it? It doesn't clarify. It doesn't bring any answers. Now, of course, we could go the other extreme. One who speaks and has no action, we got another problem. But that's not Mordecai. Mordecai is the man of action. But there are no words. Maybe it's absence. Maybe the reason God gave us this book Maybe the purpose of this book is not to raise up an Esther who says, if I perish, I perish. Actually, that's kind of fatalism. Maybe the purpose is not to to look at these people as being such wonderful examples of faith. Maybe they were. But maybe God's point in bringing us this word, is to show us what happens when a people becomes enculturated with the society and the world around them. So even though their actions are still right, they've been so culturally indoctrinated that the only thing left is their Jewish nationalism. There's not much left of their religion. There's a lot of nationalism. There's a lot of patriotism. But there isn't a lot of God. And sometimes I wonder if that's what's happened to the church Of Jesus Christ today. Have we become so enculturated by the society around us that we have nothing left to say to the world? And we're just motivated by some sort of We need to preserve the church. Or worse yet, we've simply become church-going Americans. And all we really got left is our nationalism. 
And there is no Christ. There is no sovereign Lord. But friends, take a look around the church world of the 21st century in America. had a lot of flag-waving folks, but not a lot of Bible folks. I'm not saying that about us, although it may be true for some. But the church world in general has turned into an awful lot of the book of Esther. Good action doing good things, involved in a lot of good causes, but it can't speak God's truth anymore. Let's pray. Let's pray that we never become cultural Christians. Father, thank you for your word. It's a challenge today. It's a challenge because, Father, it calls for a right understanding and a right respect of those who have, from our nations, given their lives. But at the same time, Father, there is a much higher calling upon us, the calling to be a Christian, the calling to confess before men Christ. Father, may our mouths always speak of Christ so that there is no uneasiness left when our story is done and our story is written. As interesting as it is, as many good things, right things that we have done. Father, may our story end with he, she, confessed Christ to the glory of God the Father. And God's people say, Amen.